0: So summit day and we're halfway along now. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool place. We're looking straight at a kind of an eruption of rock and ice straight in front of us in the middle of a sea of, of uh, snow and ice and in the distance, um, just uh, clouds, so we're above the cloud line. So it's pretty cool seeing. So, yeah, so far so good. Mount Vincent,
1: the Antarctic. One of the highest and most remote mountains in the world. An Irishman, Paul Devaney, has the summit in his sights.
0: It's 6.30 on the 5th of January 2014 and we are on top of Antarctica. Thank God for that. Yeah, nothing but peaks pointing out through snow. It is, it is amazing. It's been a long hour push up here. But uh, definitely worth it up here. Definitely worth it.
1: Now this might sound like the end of a journey, but really it's the beginning of another one. Because for the last seven years, Paul Devani has been climbing the highest mountains in the world as part of the Seven Summits Challenge. From Africa to Australia, Europe to the Americas, it's been an epic journey across all seven of the world's continents. And it's one that's almost coming to a close. In fact, there's only one mountain left, the most legendary of them all. Mount
0: Everest. This is adventure, you know. This is what a variant of this is what, you know, the guys had to deal with on a larger scale a hundred years ago with endurance. You know, ordinary people doing extraordinary things. That's that's kind of what I see this as. I've kinda of got some of that ahead of me. I've finished now my sixth summit of seven and Everest is the only one left. Who knew that day would come? But here it is and we have to be ready mentally. We have to be Agile to deal with changing surroundings, changing topography with avalanches, nice falls, and changing circumstances. And you gotta want it. You gotta want it enough that when you go for it, you get it.
1: Less than 300 climbers around the world have managed to climb all seven of the summits involved in the challenge. And Paul Devani, originally from Cloe and County Longford, hopes to be one of them. Paul's own story of climbing mountains began back in 2005, when he was working for Rolls-Royce in Hong Kong. Before leaving the country, he decided to make the legendary trek to Base Camp, a seven-day trek through mountains and valleys that brings you right up to the foot of Mount Everest.
0: It looks black. And you can find it because it's black, you know. There's a white mountain. There's a, oh, there's a black mountain Everest. And then you can see this beautiful cl- cloud formation just over it and curling back up on itself. It looks so beautiful and peaceful and picturesque, but if you're up close to it, it would be like like a very, very high speed train just constantly whizzing past the mountain.
1: The winds on Everest can reach up to 200 miles per hour as the jet stream slams into the side of the mountain. But every year, for a few weeks in May, these winds die down enough to allow climbers to try for the summit. Paul has been dreaming about this for a long time. But the funny thing is, is that when he started off, he didn't actually have the greatest head for heights.
2: In terms of tolerance of heights, he's pretty much down at the bottom rung of the ladder in the house. So he's scared of heights? He's terrified of them.
1: That's him. one of Paul's brothers, who was responsible for updating the social media while Paul was climbing the highest mountains
2: in the world. We were astonished by his interest and then his progression in mountaineering. Because there was no history of it.
1: By 2012, Paul had climbed five of the highest peaks in the world. But to train for the final two, he left his well paid job in Berlin to return to Ireland and train full time.
2: He certainly has suffered for his art, there's no question about it. And from what you hear of his training regime in Limerick, it was quite intense.
3: What is
1: the University of Limerick boasts one of the most modern and best equipped sports facilities in Ireland. And it was here where Paul spent nine months preparing to climb for both Antarctica and Everest. Paul's training focused on everything from strength training to yoga, but he also focused on endurance training with instructor Aidan
0: O'Keefe.
3: For people just think it's just a mountain, there's more than a mountain. Like when you look at base camp, base camp is basically the same height as Kilimanjaro. So you're over 5,000 up already. And then you're going, oh Lord, he still has to climb a mountain.
1: Eden, tell us a little bit about what was actually involved in Paul's training for Everest and I suppose for Antarctica too.
3: We had a plan of climbing the stairs of a building down the road further, just constantly up, back down, up, back down, just to build his legs, just get used to that endurance, getting used to the weight of the boots, steppers inside, Stairmaster. There's an arc trainer inside long hauls on that, just pure endurance, just pure hard slog.
1: To prepare his body for breathing at high altitudes, Paul also lived and trained at one of the only facilities of its kind in Ireland and the UK, the National Altitude Centre at UL. By controlling the amounts of oxygen being pumped into each room, the house can simulate heights of over 4,000 metres. Now this helps prepare climbers for breathing the thin air of Everest.
4: Again, during your training how are you feeling?
1: Grand, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, you
4: know
0: a
1: um, Yeah, same. Not normal. This is Rachel Turner, who's working with Paul on altitude training. Rachel has been to Everest Base Camp before to study the impact of altitude on climbers and she knows firsthand the dangers of climbing at the same height as a cruising jet aircraft.
4: What's difficult about Everest is that you're so far and above the level which people can actually aid you down. Even even trying to lead someone down who's very ataxic or uncoordinated it makes it very difficult to rescue people even if you recognise the symptoms and you want to bring them down. It's an incredibly dangerous place.
1: As a testament to the dangers of Everest, there are scores of frozen bodies scattered along that final push for the summit. In fact, even stopping to try and help someone in trouble be incredibly risky.
3: That was one thing that scared me with Paul because I know he has a heart. And if anyone got in trouble on that mountain, he would sacrifice himself, sacrifice his dream just to help that person. Like a prime example was on Antarctica. He went out and a person got in trouble with their own sled, dragging it along, and they were just weren't able for it. But Paul loaded their stuff on top of his own. And doubled up the weight in his own sled and dragged that for him, so they could, their dream could come true, and like that's the true character of the man. Oh, what did you
1: think of when Paul said that he was going to be climbing all these mountains
5: now? That's well, I didn't years? realize, but he was going to. You know, it didn't seem to be enormous at the time, but now
1: I know. Paul comes from a family of nine, and they've supported him from the very start. But with a few weeks to go before he's due to leave. His mum Eileen is worried.
5: But the possibility of of, um, an avalanche or...
0: Not as much as... um, ice slide or anything like that? Very little. There used to be in the early days when the Sherpas didn't understand the mountains so well. They used to put camps in fairly ridiculous places, but that's not become as big an issue at all.
1: As Paul reassures his mum, nobody could have realised just how deadly avalanches would prove to be for Everest 2014. Paul has put a lot on the line to try and realise his dream, spending over €100,000 of his own money on the Seven Summits Challenge, with over 30000 on Everest alone. And all of this
0: just to have a shot at climbing the tallest mountain in the world. Why do I want to climb Everest? I guess I want to create a bit of wonder in my life, if I'm being really honest. Um, it's not that I don't have wonder in my life, but I think when I go to these extraordinary places and have you know the privilege to do these extraordinary things... It motivates me to do things that are harder but better than the alternative. And that's a pretty darn nice way to live life. So,
4: from the top,
0: weight.
4: 88.6. Okay, and sleep, how many
1: hours? Back in UL, and Paul is having one final check-up with Rachel before getting ready to leave.
0: I mean, the cough is still there, and it's still... It's not going away yet, but it, it doesn't harm the train at all that much. So,
4: I think it's important that you <coughs> just keep
0: that... A few
1: weeks earlier, Paul caught a cold. And while it's nothing to worry about at sea level, the higher up you go, the more serious it becomes.
4: It's very common for people to get uh, upper respiratory tract uh, infection when they're climbing. The air is much drier. Obviously, it's a lot colder. Um, and there's there's a lot of dirt and dust particles, especially on the trek up Everest base camp. Um, so it's common. Uh, it's actually called the kumbu cough. <laughs> and um, it's definitely something that we would have discussed in terms of how you would avoid it, but also how you're going to treat it if you, if it does happen to you.
1: Paul ends up taking some medication before leaving for Everest, and the cold seems to have disappeared by the time he arrives at Dublin Airport to meet up with his friend Nilo Burns, the other half of the Seven Summits Challenge. From there, the pair leave for Kathmandu and meet up with one of the most important members of their team. Their Sherpa, a guide called Mingma, who has been up and down Everest 19
0: times. We'd met Mingma at the airport when we arrived. Um, He had a huge welcome for us. Uh, Typically, when you you meet Nepalese folks, they'll present you with a scarf of some sort. Um, So you're constantly accumulating religious scarves. And uh, we met him at the airport and he presented us with our scarves and we presented him with some Irish Seven Summits hoodies that we got for him and his son. Uh, And, you know, we'd, we'd been talking to Mingma a lot before the expedition, but this was the first time we met him. He's a very warm chap. And there was a very immediate rapport, I think, between all of us and Mingma.
1: When you arrive at Hillary and Norgay Airport at Lukla, just 24 miles from Everest, you're surrounded by huge mountains and no real roads. Paul has brought with him over 50 kilos in climbing gear, and the only way to get it to base camp is by Nepalese yak.
0: Yeah, they're extraordinary creatures because they're able to deal incredibly well with low air, thin air, low oxygen environments, which is why they're used, why they thrive up there. Um, And so they have bells attached to them, um, partly so you can hear them coming and partly so their owners can can find them. Um, But you'll always hear this kind of ding, 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 the whole way up the valley until you get to Everest Base Camp.
1: Paul also brought with him a small audio recorder to capture the sounds of his journey to base camp along the way.
0: It's the 3rd of April. We're on day 7 since we left Dublin. Uh, we're in Namche Bazaar at 3,400 metres. So today has been our rest day, acclimatisation day. We, we trekked fairly steep bit for about an hour, an hour and a little bit, uh, up to an area where you can get your first glimpse of the mountain. So we are able to stare out at Everest in the distance and Lutze beside it and very nice place beautiful view just looking out the window and yeah it's um, it's a completely different scene it's a winter scene out there and you can feel it the temperature's cold um, Saoirse Tree is up ahead of us she's a girl from Irish girl who's trekking to base camp and she's up at base camp and she said it's minus 22 degrees up there so we're we're kind of getting ourselves ready to leave the tea house situations behind and start living in tents and, and dealing with severe cold. But we've got the gear, and this is what we've come here to do, so I guess the sooner we get into that environment, the better. But I guess this is uh, this is Paul signing out at Namche Bazaar, 3,400 metres on the 3rd of April 2014.
1: <laughs> the track to Everest Base Camp allows you time to get to know your teammates and to slowly get used to life at the high altitudes. The higher up you go, the thinner the air gets. And even walking uphill begins to
0: feel like a struggle. But as soon as you start moving and the oxygen demand gets created, uh, you find that there's less available and you find it's more difficult. And you get out of breath and you'll become completely out of breath within 10 steps. And you're hoping you won't meet anyone on the route. Because if you had to have a conversation with anyone... It was a conversation where both people are completely out of breath. And you you have this kind of feeling that you haven't a measure yet of how good you are versus everyone else. So you don't want to meet somebody that then is talking to you while you're out of breath and they're fine, and they're staring at you going, and you want to climb Everest. <laughs> so that's constantly playing in the back of your mind a little bit. But yeah, any movement at all, uh, and you really feel the demand.
1: In these early days of the Track 2 Everest Base Camp, Finding it difficult to breed while hiking at over 3,400 metres isn't the only challenge Paul faces.
0: So it's uh, it's now uh, about 2 o'clock on the 7th of April. I'm in Dingbushay today, and this is our second day in Dingbushay. So we arrived in here the day before yesterday, and we're going to spend two days here basically acclimatising. So yesterday was a climb up out of here to a mountain, about 5,000 meters high, 5,045 meters high. Uh, it was good, nice day, really good to be up on, on a peak, our first peak so far. Got some nice photos, but on the way down, I could feel some of the, the cold that I had the week before I came to Nepal starting to creep back in and starting to feel nasally and starting to feel congestion and throat and all the rest of it. Uh, by the time I got back down here, it was it was evident that that uh, cold had sort of reemerged, and blossomed again, so... So yeah, I've, I've been feeling pretty, pretty crap, pretty miserable for the last twenty-four hours, and uh, yeah, I'm just trying to get rid of this damn thing. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna see how I go, and if I have to carve out a kind of a separate itinerary from here to base camp, then then so be it. I don't mind that. Um, it takes me away from the group, but at the end of the day, it's about getting healthy and being able to do this thing when we get up there.
4: It's very difficult when you're at altitude to defend yourself against even something as simple as a common cold. Your immune uh, system is slightly compromised already because of the physiological stress that your body is is under generally. Uh, So that means uh, both fighting and shifting a cold quickly as we normally might uh, with the normal treatment that we might use uh, may become ineffective. And really, the only way you're going to shift something like that is to drop down a little bit in altitude and then treat appropriately.
0: Today is the 9th of April. I think it's the ninth of April, and um, yeah, it is. And I'm heading in the wrong direction. For the first time, I'm heading back down the. Just drinking some soup here. I'm heading back down the mountain. Um, to grab some salt. I've left the team behind, they're heading up to Gorik Shep, we just all spent the night at Leboche about 4,800 metres and my cold in my head, which you can hear, is becoming a cold in my chest which is a bigger problem, so I need to get rid of it, and I can't get rid of it at altitude and up high so I've got to head down as far as I can until I get enough um, oxygen in my system that my immune system starts to bulk up and beat off this, this uh, virus because up higher it'll develop into something nasty like pneumonia, or even worse, so... It's a bit disheartening, gotta be honest. It's not nice turning right when your team turns left, you know? It feels a bit shit. Kinda of feels like you fail failed a little bit, but... It's good for the head to do it. It teaches your brain to understand that you're making decisions now for the next two, two months that affect your health, your well-being, your success rate on the mountain, to, the odds of you getting to the top, and frankly, on summit day, your life as well. So, I better sack up and learn how to make those decisions early, had not I? The goal is to summit. That's it.
1: Taking part in the Seven Summits Challenge is hard on the body. You have to deal with extreme cold, physical injuries, and both mental and physical exhaustion.
2: So, it was a client where he came back home and he was noticeably gaunt. So, you could definitely see it, it had its effects on it. But I suppose he'd say that's that's part and parcel of it, you know. You know, the end result's going to be completely worth it.
1: Mountains are unpredictable places, which is why Paul put so much effort into planning every single step of the way. But as he learned back in 2008, while climbing in South America, there are just some things, both on and off the mountain, that are beyond his control.
0: It was about 5,000 metres we were acclimatising both Niall and myself it was a hard, hard day and we'd come down off the mountain after a long day heading into the track that brings you right into our base camp and someone called out my name and he said such and such a person has called you need to call home and that's all I knew for about two and a half hours uh, and then eventually over dinner they, they took me out of the tent during the dinner uh, brought me over to the mess tent and he just stood in front of me and he said your father, he had a heart attack and he kind of put his hand up to his heart. He, he had a heart attack, he is dead. And that was it. And then the, the mission was, right, okay. I'm on the in the middle of the Andes on the Argentinian-Chilean border and I've got to get to Longford. So when I came back, you, you're kind of confronted with this surreal situation. You're kind of wondering why you're not still on the mountain. What's going on here? i meant to be halfway up a mountain at the moment. This this madness. What what's, and it takes you quite a long time to to realize what's actually happened in front of you or what's is happening in front of you.
1: 3 years later, Paul made it back to that mountain in South America. And he brought with him a pebble from his father's grave to lay on the summit. It was the fifth mountain of the seven summits challenge.
0: It's April 13th, Sunday. Uh, just getting ready to, <coughs> to leave Namche. A few
1: days later, back on Everest and Paul is recovering from his cold. He's had to turn around and hike back down the mountain to lower altitudes, just to give his body a chance to recover. But now he's back on track.
0: So it's been three days of rest here at Namche, which I've really appreciated. I was trying to get cracking, get back up and you know, prove that this cold is behind me. There's a few sniffles and a little bit of it still around, but Think enough of it is gone, but we can get on with this. So uh, looking forward to getting back into the groove of it. It's Easter week and it's an important week because there's a lot of big things potentially going to happen and actually going to happen. My brother and his wife are expecting their first kid. So that's uh, due this week, actually due on the 14th of April, which is tomorrow, which is my dad's, it would have been my dad's 70th birthday. So that's a big milestone as well in the week. So I'm really looking forward to good news. I'm um, really looking forward to hearing about a new niece or nephew this week. And uh, I gather likely to be late rather than early. So, you know, maybe I'll be in base camp when he she arrives. Um, you never know. And it's going to take, I guess, the rest of this week to get acclimatized to the high mountain or to the base camp level. Including climbing 6,100 meter peak, Lebuche East. So that's all ahead, um, and with a bit of luck, by next Saturday, I should be rolling into base camp. So from Namche, heading up the mountain, this is Paul signing out.
1: Paul rejoins his team a few days later, and on April 17th, he reaches the peak of Le Boucher. For the first time, he can actually see Everest Base Camp in front
0: of him. We're on top of Lebuche East, uh, at six thousand one hundred metres, so just getting something to eat. For a long day, we've been on the go since four thirty, it's now nine fifteen. And uh, it's yeah, it's quite the summit. Lebuche, the main summit is how towering over us here on the left. But yeah, we're on Lebuche East and looking right down into base camp, into the Cumba Valley and straight across to Everest. It's perfect weather day. Blue skies, nice sunshine, but that was hard going. Hopefully a snack now and head back down and regain some strength and get ready for the icefall. I'm looking across at it here and it's it's menacing, so it's, uh, there's a lot of work to do. So on top of the British East, 18th of April 2014, at 6,119 meters.
1: Up ahead is Base Camp, and one of the most dangerous parts of climbing Everest, the Khumbu Icefall. It's around a mile and a half stretch of huge chunks of ice the size of cars and buses, stretched over deep crevasses, and the whole thing is constantly moving, twisting and shaking.
4: Base Camp is an awe-inspiring place. You get there, you're elated to get there. Um, you settle in, you settle into your tent, and immediately in the first night, you can hear um, the glacier moving, cracking underneath you. Um, in that way, it's almost intimidating. Um, you're looking directly at the Kumbu Icefall, and there's like a sixth sense within your body which tells you that's not a great place to be. <laughs> you know, it's 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 exactly what it says on the tin. It's a it's a moving glacier coming down off the highest mountain in the world, um, you can tell that there's danger.
1: As Paul and the team of climbers take pictures from the summit, the mood on top of Le Boucher is a triumphant one. But at this stage, nobody has any idea that two hours earlier, Everest and the Kumbu Icefall have been struck by one of the worst ever climbing disasters.
4: 12 Nepalese mountain guides have died in an avalanche on Mount Everest this morning. Officials say the avalanche happened at around half past six local... When I
2: read it, a media went, oh no. And I sent a message immediately around to everyone in the family saying there was an avalanche and this is pretty serious. There's a number of people dead here. This is, this is big news.
5: Everest's deadliest day. The avalanche hit on the mountain's most popular route, leaving at least 12 dead and 5 missing. The dead were all Nepalese guides. They were
0: caught relatively low on the mountain. So it's uh, it's Good Friday, the 18th of April, and we're back in Lebeshe. I'm just walking through the little village here. And it's been, well, it's been quite a day uh, because it's been a bit of a disastrous day at base camp. We came back to a report that uh, almost 20 Sherpas had been killed in the icefall today and it looks as if that's, for the most part, true. So you can see the fallout of it everywhere. Every Sherpa in our team is touched by it, either through a relative or a friend, and it's a very hard day for them. It's the single greatest disaster in the history of Everest. We don't know what's going to happen now the next few days, frankly. So we're just eagerly watching that, and um, let's see how things pan out. So we're due in base camp tomorrow. It'll be my first trip to base camp on this t- expedition, so I'm looking forward to that. But it's tinged with the sadness of today, and yeah, it's gonna be a tough place to be for the next few days. But it's much tougher for the families of the Sherpas, so that's what we think about tonight. From, from Le Boucher on a crisp, cold evening on Good Friday.
1: Back home in Ireland, before leaving for Everest, Paul had spent hours poring over maps and diagrams, explaining to Colum and his family where he would be on any
2: given day. Uh, I knew we knew where he was, and, and that was before he would have contacted us. We knew he wasn't going to be there, so uh, we, you know, we, were pretty comfortable that it was okay. But he, he did ring my mum as well, just to, you know, because he, he did realise he did have to ring home and just make sure she, so she heard his voice. But as well as that, I think he just realised just having a conversation, where at least a short one, or whatever it was was what they both needed possibly
1: mm. but interesting, your, your mum she, she thought that you should still stick with it and, yeah. and still try and make the climb
2: I mean obviously we're from our point of view over here we, we don't get a sense of what we're only getting partial bits of information about what's happening so the opportunity for him to climb was there and when you've been climbing peaks for seven years and you've reached the, the end goal and there it is in sight why on earth would you give up?
0: 19th of April and I've finally 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 arrived into base camp it's um, 24 hours now since the big since the big disaster up on the icefall and the numbers were getting so far that the 16 confirmed dead and we don't know how big that's going to get but you can kind of see from where we are where the avalanche has happened but you can't make out anything else Um, there's no signs of anything else we've seen choppers coming in and out all day on our way up here and from Lebuchet this morning but it's um I guess it looks and feels no different than it would the day before, but we're all sitting and wait now wondering what's gonna happen. Um, priority is obviously to get those folks down off the mountain and back to their families and that's gonna be a lengthy process and once that's done, to work out, you know, how to make safe the icefall and even whether it can be made safe, you know, whether the whether what's happened has compromised the ice fall or not, I don't know. We're going to find that out in the next few days. It's Easter Sunday, the 20th of April, and I'm stood here at the bottom of the icefall, looking right up. It doesn't look like anything is untoward when you're looking up at the icefall from where I am. It just looks like another day, you know. There's Everest, there's clouds above it. Very, very unusual clouds with spectrum of light flying off them. It's very dramatic looking. That's the jet stream up there. Um, Everest is calm and peaceful. Uh, the summit doesn't look all that far away. I can see it from here. I think I can
1: anyway. The summit seems close, but as the situation unfolds at base camp, the possibility of reaching the top is slipping further away.
0: Today, all the Sherpas and some some big teen guys are going to meet and decide whether we put a stop to the whole season or not. So it's a big day in terms of deciding what happens this year. It doesn't happen. You can see the Sherpas are shaking. You can see it physically in their faces, actually. Um, And they're, you know, they're wondering whether the mountain's angry and, you know, the gods of Sagamartha are saying this is not a year to climb. And that's their spirituality and their belief and, that's going to actually decide what they do and what they don't do. So they're going to decide whether they want to go on and we can't go on without Sherpas. So let's see how it goes. But uh, yeah, interesting times on Everest, an interesting Easter Sunday. In the
1: days that followed, time slowed down at Everest as climbers and Sherpas tried to come to terms with what had just happened, mourning the loss of their brothers and meeting up to discuss what was going to happen next.
0: And when there is a tragedy like this,
2: does everything stop for a time or does business continue as usual?
1: Well,
5: I suppose, again, it'll, 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 I mean, it'll certainly stop.
2: It was very confusing. Um, there were a lot of breaking news um, over the days which would then be contradicted by the afternoon. And that was happening a lot. And at a certain point, from from our own perspective in, in, in working on social media, it came to a point where... The only word that we were going to take was Paul's word. I would say, you know, within certainly a fairly short period of time, again, the, the the Sherpas will be back and
5: they'll be fixing ropes and the expeditions will be moving again. Um, it's, it's the nature of, uh, I suppose, the large...
0: So the big Sherpa meeting's going on across the way from us here. You can hear some of the noise. All of the Sherpas, Sherpa leaders have come together to think and talk about talk about what's happened and what's going to happen over the next few weeks so yeah, it's going to be an interesting outcome we're just waiting to hear back but yeah it's uh, there's been a lot of roaring and shouting and cheering and one guy in the centre seems to be leading the pack and they're talking about what risk they may have and what's happened to up to 20 of their colleagues in the past few days so it's a very emotion driven meeting I'm sure, but our leader Mingma, is over there with the rest of the team so we should hear back soon there's a helicopter circling overhead taking some photographs and examining the the ice fall behind us to see if it's safe but also taking some snaps here of what's going on it's a pretty historic thing really i suppose sherpas deciding how they're going to progress on their mountain i suppose which it is and um they'll ultimately decide if they want to go on or not so we're waiting to hear back on that But the Sherpas, am I right in saying, have decided collectively um, that they feel climbing should cease for this year? I don't think all the Sherpas have, but a big majority of the Sherpas have
5: actually decided that they are not going to go back up on the mountain. And I think that that is their prerogative uh, in relation to the fact
1: that... Every year, the Nepalese government takes in around $4 million to licences for climbing the mountain. Climbers would be lost without Sherpas and Sherpas and their families rely on the income from the climbing industry to survive. After the accident, however, it was revealed that just $400 was offered to Sherpa families to help with funeral costs.
5: We wish, we wish this is just a, just a bad dream. We want to wake up with a fresh dream. We wish. We are
1: just As the meetings progressed, sorrow and that sense of loss quickly turned to anger and frustration and a standoff quickly developed between the Sherpas demanding better working conditions and the government. But climbers like Paul caught in between.
5: Those uh, my brothers on the mountain, and I hope they will find a quick path to the Nirvana. I'm
0: We only heard of a pocket of the demands, which all seemed logical, all of them, you know more helicopter support at base camp, more money for the family seemed logical, um, better um, insurance seemed logical. Anything that makes the situation at base camp safer, that makes the livelihood of the Sherpas more secure, has got to be a good thing. You know, These guys, like us, they're putting themselves in harm's way, but they're doing it more often than we are. They're going through the icefall more often than we go through it, by a factor sometimes of 10. So, you know... How could you argue with these things? And I think everyone we spoke to and the gr- feeling within our group was good for them, good for We would them. like
5: to put a pressure on the government. Government must support the richest family. They must have for the kids to get the complete education. I don't want to see them to sleep in the road. I don't want to see them to uh, be in the street. And for this, to put the pressure to the government, I hope that all the Western <laughs> friends brothers and sisters from all over the world and all the Nepalese Sherpas, my friends, my brothers. Let's put a hand together and let's request the government to support these people. Thank you very much, guys.
1: As talks continue, the future of the climbing season on Everest remains uncertain. A few days later, a traditional puja ceremony takes place to pay respects to the dead.
0: We didn't know that we were attending the finality of this. We didn't know that we were standing around in the last days of Everest 2014 on the Nepal side. We did no sense of that at all. Wednesday the 23rd of April at base camp again. Yeah, it's been a day of mixed emotion today. <coughs> Up this morning, usual time, breakfast at 8. Uh, we knew there was a meeting planned for this morning to negotiate with the with the ministry down in Kathmandu. And we had dinner there just about an hour ago and Mingma came in and told us that many of the teams are now pulling off the mountain and going home. So I don't know what's next. And uh, yeah... Let's see what happens tomorrow.
1: The next day, the remaining expedition leaders make the unprecedented decision to leave the mountain and abandon the season.
0: Ultimately, we've all come away with nothing, but we've come away with our lives, I guess, which is more than the 16 Sherpas. Again, it's hard to... It's hard to... To find any comfort in that, that's a dreadful thing to say, but it's really hard in the moment of the collapse of your aspiration to find some sort of, of you know, comfort in the fact that you're still around, because you always expected you would be. You just expected you would be and have the mountain climbed as well.
1: 2014 is over it's been a crushing disappointment for Paul and his team but there was some good news waiting for him when he arrived home
0: a new niece the baby was late <laughs> and very late <laughs> I didn't want to come out at all <laughs> so I was back in Kathmandu when that child was born, <laughs> yeah, little Olivia um, A little Olivia so a little niece You've been back in Ireland, Paul. You know, it's been a couple of months now since since Everest. How do you view the whole experience now? Um, some of the anger belonged in the situation. I mean, you don't have that now. You know, you have got it that you didn't get the opportunity and you've got to face into all of the training again. And, you know, you, you start to see the pictures from Kathmandu of the funerals and the families. And, you know, we started a fund... Sherpa Fund to try and raise money for the Avalanche Appeal and you know you get involved in things like that but I still bemoan the fact that there was a lack of coordinated leadership across all of the Westerners and the Sherpa to come together and say no no this is how we're going to run it and that after a period of acceptable mourning the season should have resumed as it will resume next year and there will be 500 people in base camp next year and life will go on.
1: Will you be one of them?
0: I hope to be one of them. I don't know.
1: 2014 was the darkest year on Mount Everest. The debate over Sherpa working conditions continues, but Paul and his team are still determined to get him to the top of that very famous mountain.
2: He will end up achieving his goal, and certainly we're going to help him get to that final step, get to that final summit.
3: We have to move forward. And that was the thing, it's the same way in the mountain. You have to keep moving forward. If you stay still, it's going to consume you and take you over. And we're not going to let that happen.
4: I don't think that he'll be happy until he's uh, standing on the top of Everest with the flag saying, I, I did it.
0: At the end of the day, what you want to do is stand on the top and come back home. And you have to find the way to do it. And, you know, we will. we found a way to get there once. We'll find a way to get back.